The following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This morning we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. And we're in Acts chapter 5 this morning. While you're finding your way there, let me tell you this quick story about Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell was a British general, lived in the 17th century. And uh, in his middle-aged years, he commissioned a famous painter to paint a portrait of him. And uh, Cromwell was not exactly a good-looking man. His face had quite a few blemishes on it and quite a few warts. And uh, as was the custom at the time, when this painter painted Cromwell... He painted him with perfect skin, didn't paint any of the blemishes. Uh, But when Cromwell received the painting, he rejected it. And he said to the painter, start again and paint me warts and all. And that's where we get the expression, warts and all, which we use nowadays to refer to something being exactly as it is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this passage that we're looking at this morning in Acts 5, it really shows the church warts and all. Uh, I mean, this is not a perfect church. Any notion that the early church was some kind of pristine church is totally put to rest by this passage. This is a pretty shocking story. Uh, It's got lies, betrayal, corruption, deceit, sin. It's just, it's it's a terrible story. And it's such a contrast with everything that seems to have come before it. We've had these beautiful passages about the rich community in the early church and the prayer, and the evangelism, and the fellowship that went on. But now we get this, and it just kind of stops us in our tracks uh, as such a disturbing story of just how broken the church was in its early days. Let me just briefly recap the story for you. Uh, The story centers around this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And there was a practice happening in the early church where people occasionally would sell land that they had, or sell a property that they had, And they would take the proceeds from the sale and they would bring it to the apostles and that would be distributed to people in the church who had need. Now Ananias and Sapphira, they do this. They had a piece of land, they sell the land, and they bring part of the proceeds to the apostles. But they keep some of the money back for themselves. Now in and of itself, that's fine. Uh, This was all a completely voluntary arrangement. There was no pressure on anybody to sell anything. Uh, If people did that, they did that out of their own free will, and there was no pressure for people to bring the entire proceeds of the sale to the church. They could keep some of it back. So the problem was not that Ananias and Sapphira kept some of the money back. The problem was that they lied about it. The problem was they presented this as if they were giving all of the proceeds from the sale to the church, to people in need, whereas that wasn't the case at all. And one way or another, Peter finds out about this. Uh, We don't know exactly how, maybe just by direct revelation from God, but he finds out what's going on and he confronts Ananias directly. And he says, Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? And you notice he doesn't talk about him lying to Peter himself. He talks about Ananias lying to God, lying to the Holy Spirit. This was a sin against God primarily. And uh, the sin is so, is so shocking, it's so grievous, that on hearing this, Ananias falls down dead at Peter's feet. Three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in. She doesn't know anything about what's just happened. And Peter confronts her and, and asks her the question, 
Is this all of the money? Is this everything you got from the sale? And she says, yes, it is. She carries on the lie. And Peter confronts her about her sin, and she too falls down dead, and people take her body out. She's buried beside her husband. It's a disturbing story, this one. It's, it's maybe one of those stories that we wish wasn't in the Bible. Uh, it raises some difficult questions for us. It raises questions like, why is this punishment so severe? I mean, Peter, of all people, would have known how easy it is for people to tell a lie. And Peter himself had denied Jesus three times, and he hadn't died. He'd been forgiven. He'd been restored by Jesus. So why now does Peter rebuke these people so severely, and why do they die because of their sin? How come? Well, I think one way of understanding the story, a way that can be helpful, is to sit it beside another story in the Bible. There's a much earlier story in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, that has some parallels to this story and can help us understand it a bit better, I think. In Joshua chapter 7, the Israelites have entered into the promised land of Canaan and they've begun taking possession of the land and they come to this particular city. And God commands them that when they conquer this city, they're to take the treasure of that city and dedicate it to the Lord. It should be taken to the treasury of the Lord. But one Israelite, his name's Achan, he keeps some of that back for himself, keeps some of the valuables, keeps some of the treasure for himself. And so he acts dishonestly. He acts deceitfully. And the next day, the Israelites go out into battle against their enemies, as they often did. But this time they're decimated. They lose the battle and, they, and 36 Israelite soldiers are killed. And when this is traced back, the cause of their defeat is the sin of Achan. Because of his sin, God's blessing had been removed from the community. And God had stopped fighting for Israel so that they were exposed. They were vulnerable before their enemies. 36 people died because of Achan's sin. The sin of that one man affected the entire community. Now, that helps us see a little bit more of what's going on in this passage with Ananias and Sapphira. You've got a stage very early in the development of the church here. This, these are early days for the church. The church is just in an embryonic form at this point. It's just getting going. It's just getting started. And God knew how important it was to preserve and protect this fledgling little community called the church at this point in time. And he sees the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. He sees this lie and deceit and corruption and duplicitous behavior. And God knows how easily that sin can affect the entire community. He knows how easily the sin of one or two people can get in and contaminate a, a, a community, contaminate a church culture. And it can come to define the ethos and the character. It can corrupt the character of a church. And it then would affect the mission of the church in the world. People hear about this. You know, if they heard about Ananias and Sapphira, you know, what, 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 a, what a bunch of crooks. People would feel like this church that, that purported to be about generosity was really just about deceit and about lying. And the mission of the church would be thwarted and would be compromised. So God knew he had to step in early and he had to deal decisively with this issue. And he does that. Now, that doesn't mean that God acts this way every time someone tells a lie or every time someone sins. You don't need to worry that if you tell a lie, not that we should do that, but if you tell a lie that somehow God is going to strike you down where you are. This is an exceptional circumstance. It's exceptional because it's such a pivotal moment 
in the unfolding and formation of the church. It's a pivotal moment in the biblical story. It's a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. And at this point, God acts in an extraordinary way, in an exceptional way, to deal with sin in the church in order to protect the purity of his church, protect the identity of his church, protect the mission of his church, and really to protect the very existence of the church. So these are exceptional circumstances, not normal circumstances. But it is still a sobering story. I mean, this is, this is troubling, and, and this is a pretty serious kind of event that happened. But I think the more that you look into the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the more that you can see there is good news here as well. There's good news in this story. Maybe it's not immediately obvious, but, but it's here. Because as you look at these people, you realize, we, we, you and me, we're a lot like Ananias and Sapphira in a lot of ways. I mean, it's easy to criticize them. It's easy to look at them and say, they're just a bunch of liars. These are terrible people. These are sinful people. But, but don't, don't we all act in similar ways at times? Maybe not exactly the same circumstances, but we all, we've, we've all lied. We, we've lied to ourselves or we've lied to other people. Maybe we've lied to God. We have dishonesty in our lives. We shade the truth sometimes. We smudge the truth sometimes. We embellish the truth sometimes. We act out of selfish motives and selfish means so much of the time. We are sinful people. We, we are broken people. We have sin in our hearts and in our lives just like these people did. We're really no better than them. And the sobering part of the story is the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Like what our sin deserves is exactly what Ananias and Sapphira got. So even though this is incredibly severe, the reality is they just got what we all deserve. We, we do deserve death because we're sinful people. The harsh truth is that, that any time we commit a sin against God, we deserve death. We deserve to fall down dead. Now, I know that's harsh to hear, but, but this is this is what we deserve as sinful people. So we're in the same shoes as Ananias and Sapphira. But here's the good news. Just as the story reminds us of our own sin, it also points us to the remedy for sin, which is Jesus. You think about Jesus. He was so unlike Ananias and Sapphira in so many ways. I mean, these, these are people of deceit, but Jesus, it is said, had no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He was totally honest. Never told a lie, never shaded the truth, never smudged the truth. He was upright, he was completely honest throughout his entire life. And yet, just like Ananias and Sapphira, Jesus died an untimely death. But when Jesus died, he took upon himself all of our sin. He took upon himself all of our lies. He took upon himself all of our deceit and all of our dishonesty. He took all of our, our corruption. He took all of the, the, the impure motives in our heart, all of the ways in which we are flawed and failed human beings, and we fail to live up to, to the glory of God and the humanity that he intended for us. Jesus took all of that upon himself, and he died so that we could be forgiven. He died so that we wouldn't have to experience this death, eternal separation from God, but that we could be brought into a place of forgiveness, of freedom and reconciliation. Because of the death of Jesus, his righteous life has become our righteousness. And his obedience has become our obedience. His faithfulness to God has become our faithfulness to God. And his holiness, the holiness of Jesus, has become our 
holiness. Even though we're not holy in and of ourselves, even though we're deserving of death, we receive the holiness of Christ through sheer gift, by grace, through faith. And we are restored and we are forgiven and we are redeemed. That's the incredible good news of the gospel. We all deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got. But thank God we are forgiven and we are freed through Jesus Christ. There really is good news in the story after all. Now, having said all that, there is still a challenge for us in this story. The gospel reminds us that we are freed and we are forgiven and we've been made holy. But as those who have been made holy through Christ... We are now called to be holy in the way that we live. Because this passage still reveals to us a God who takes sin seriously. And a God who wants his people to be holy. A God who calls his church to be holy. Uh, in fact, this, is, this passage in the book of Acts, interestingly, is the first time in Acts that the word church is used. Isn't that interesting? Of all the times, I mean, of all the places that the author could choose to introduce that word, he chooses to do it here. In the story of Ananias and Sapphira, first time down in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church. It's the first time that word is used. And that tells us something, I think, about the nature of the church, who the church is, who the church is called to be. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it literally means called out, or the called out ones. And, and it has that sense that as a church, the church is called out of the kingdom of darkness, called into the kingdom of light. We're, we're called out of God's judgment and we're called into forgiveness. We're called into this place of, of freedom as the children, as the family of God. The, the church is set apart to be reconciled to God as his chosen people. But the church is also called out in the sense that we are to be set apart from the world. In the sense the church is not supposed to look like the world looks. We are supposed to be a contrast community to the world. People are supposed to look at the church and see something different to the values and the priorities and, and the things that drive others. They are supposed to see a church that stands out by its conduct, by its ways of thinking and living and being in the world. Because if the church just becomes like the world, if the church is just so focused on being relevant to the world and accepted by the world, the church has nothing to offer the world. The church has nothing to speak into the world. We are called out of the world and we are called to holiness. God cares about the holiness and the purity of his church. And that's a challenge for every one of us. This challenge comes down to a personal level for us because the church is made up of individuals. The church is made up of people like you and me. It's not just this, this big nameless group of people. The church is, is us. And so we hear this challenge, this call to holiness at a personal level. God's call to each of us is to be holy. The same Apostle Peter, who speaks to Ananias and Sapphira here, he wrote a book in the New Testament, a letter in the New Testament, in which he says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. There's a clear calling that we have as Christians to personal holiness. We've been made holy through Jesus, and now we're being called to, to be in practice what we have made to be in reality, God's holy children. And that means allowing the Holy Spirit in our lives over time to work on our character, 
to work on our attitudes, to work on our behavior, so that we are conformed to the image of God's Son over time, gradually, as a process of transformation. And it's not just about our external actions. It's not just about the stuff that we do that's visible that everyone else sees. It's about letting God work in the deep recesses of our heart. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to bring about new desires, new, new inclinations, new, new ways of thinking about ourselves so that we're transformed from the inside out. I mean, this was the issue with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, when you think about their sin, when you think about their problem, it wasn't just the lie. I mean, it's easy to focus on the lie because that's the obvious part. But, but ask yourself this question, what drove that lie? What drove the lie for Ananias and Sapphira? Why did they commit that sin? And the answer is, they wanted to be honored. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted the esteem of other people. They wanted to look good to the rest of the church. They wanted everyone to look at them and say, wow, what sacrificial people they are. Aren't they incredibly generous that they'd give all this money to the church, the entire sale of the house, of the, of the land? Aren't they, aren't they generous? They wanted the favor of people. They wanted the applause of people. They wanted the accolades from everyone else. And that's what led them to present themselves falsely and to present their circumstances falsely. Now, how relevant is that to us today? How much does that remind you of yourself? You know, we all have this desire for the approval of other people. We all have this desire to look good to other people and to be thought well of by other people. And you think about this time that we've just been through recently, the last couple of months, we've been in lockdown, we've been in this situation of real social restriction, and we haven't really been able to care that much about what other people think of us. We haven't needed to care that much about what we look like to other people. I mean, we haven't been able to get a haircut, for heaven's sake. So, haven't been able to do much about that so far. We haven't bothered to bring out the razor. We haven't bothered to bring out the makeup. Haven't bothered to keep the house very tidy because we had to, we just kind of allow ourselves to be a little bit disheveled and it just hasn't mattered. And then all of a sudden level two comes along and we're stepping out into the big wide world again. And all of a sudden out comes the razor and out comes the hair products and out comes the makeup and the house gets tidy just in case someone might pop around and we've actually got to put on proper clothes now rather than wearing the same set of clothes for, for weeks on end. And all of a sudden, we're so concerned about our appearance and how we look publicly. Now, in one sense, that's understandable, but it just highlights how obsessed we have become about how we look to everyone else, how obsessed we are in our culture with our appearance. And we're obsessed about it in physical ways, of how we, we physically come across to other people. We're obsessed about it in other ways. You think about social media, how obsessed we are about our, our Facebook page, or how many likes we've got, or what our Instagram feed is like, or whether that selfie is taken from the right angle. We're so concerned about the approval of other people, just like Ananias and Sapphira were. What would happen if you cared more about God's approval than the approval of people? What would happen if you cared more about what God thinks of you than what other people think of you? It, it would bring you back to that realization that we are accepted by God no matter what. That His acceptance of us is not fickle like the acceptance of other people. His approval of us does not go up and down. You'll never be more acceptable to God than you are right now because His acceptance of you doesn't depend on what you do or how good or how bad you are. It depends on Jesus Christ and He is totally accepted by the Father and you are accepted in Him. 
And if we can come back to that reality that we are totally accepted, we are totally secure in our identity in Christ, we don't need the approval of other people. We're not going to be as fussed about clamoring for the approval of the crowd and getting the accolades and the praise and the applause from other people. Sure, it'll be nice when it happens, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you're not going to need it like oxygen when your approval is grounded in who you are in Jesus. You are not going to need to be totally dependent on being liked and thought well of by everyone else. And if you're not thought well of by somebody for some reason, it's not catastrophic to you anymore because you know who you are in Christ. Your identity is in Him. You're grounded in Him. And that's all that matters. That's the freedom of having our hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's where holiness begins, is, is having that deeply grounded identity in Jesus. And then out of that, it's incredibly freeing because we are then set free to serve other people out of love rather than out of selfish motives. You know, An Ananias and Sapphira, they, they may have been generous in one sense, they did give money to the church, but it was done in this self-seeking, self-promoting way just to gain honor and recognition among the apostles and among the church. But when we know who we are in Christ and we've received his holiness and we know it deeply, we can serve others simply out of love with no expectation or need of any kind of reciprocation. There's a woman in our church who, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, wanted to take some meals around to another family in the church that are in need at the moment. And so she contacted us only to get the address of this other family, but she wanted to take these meals around purely anonymously. She, she didn't want to be recognized for it, didn't need the, the accolades for it, so she just took around these meals and put them in their, in their garage, took off again before they realized what was going on. That's just a simple, humble way of living out holiness. You know, holiness is a big word, but that's what it looks like day to day. It's these practical gestures of kindness out of love without any expectation of return. That's not everything that holiness is, but that's a wonderful example of it. And maybe in your life, you could think of a similar kind of gesture, maybe even in the next week or two. Is there someone you know? Is there a family in need that you know, someone who's going through or been through a difficult time, or just someone that you could bless in some way? Could you take around some meals? Could you take around some treats? Could you take around some groceries? Could you somehow do that anonymously? So they never knew that it was you. They never knew who it was. And then keep it anonymous. Sometimes that's the hard part. I mean, don't go on Facebook about it afterwards. You know, Don't go and tell 10 other people how generous you were. Just let it be anonymous. When you take a step like that, so many good things are happening internally. We are teaching our hearts to find our true identity in our acceptance before the Father, not in other people's words or accolades or praise of us. We're teaching our heart to be more grounded in what God thinks of us than what other people think of us. We're also teaching ourselves service and love, which is a huge part of holiness, to serve others out of kindness. And because Christ has served us, we serve others. The other thing that's happening when you do something like that is you're hopefully enabling the other person to turn around and thank God because they don't know who else to thank. They can't thank you. They don't know who else to thank. Hopefully, they might, might, might see this as a, as a gesture that ultimately comes from God himself. And so what you're doing is good for their soul. It's good for your heart. It's teaching you to walk in the way 
of holiness. So this story, I know it's difficult. It's a troubling and sometimes frustrating kind of story. Maybe we wish it wasn't in the Bible. But this story has some good things to teach us. It reminds us that sin is serious. And it reminds us that God does take sin seriously and that sin needs to be judged. But it also points us to this wonderful reality that sin has already been judged in Jesus. He was judged for us so that through his death, sin was fully and completely removed. It reminds us that we've been forgiven by Jesus and we've received his holiness. And now the calling of the story is that out of that, out of that holiness we have received from Jesus, out of that holy standing we have, we would now take steps towards holiness in our lives, grounded in who we are in Jesus, never doing this to try and earn favor with God. We can never do that. But out of who we are in Jesus, drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing on the grace of Christ, taking steps each day towards obedience, towards holiness, towards being conformed to a greater and greater likeness to the character of Christ. May we be anchored and grounded in our holy standing in Jesus. May we be people of holiness in our lives. And may we be a church of holiness to the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in you there is forgiveness, that in you there is, there is freedom, and that we've been made holy through you. And I pray that, Jesus, out of that, you would give us a renewed desire for holiness in our lives. Lord, we want to we hunger and thirst for righteousness, just as you called us to. We want to have the same hatred for patterns and habits of sin in our lives that are destructive, that you have. We want to have that same longing for obedience and conformity to your will that you want us to have. Jesus, would you help each of us to make this practical in our lives? Would you help each person who's listening or watching this message to think of the ways in their life, maybe the habits, the inclinations, the practices in their lives, ways of thinking, ways of reacting, ways of speaking, that you're putting your finger on and calling them to change. Lord, help us to take responsibility for the calling we have to holiness. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would lead us in this and that every time we stumble, and we will stumble many times, we know that, that we would know that you're right there with us, forgiving us and restoring us and moving us forward by your grace. We thank you, God, that you are full of love for us. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Lead us on, we pray, in this path of holiness. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.